Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Ashley Nasiri, and today we have the pleasure of having Professor Nicholas Epley on our show to discuss the role of behavioral science in understanding your patients and colleagues. Professor Epley, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest a little bit more in depth. Professor Epley is a world-renowned professor of behavioral science and the director for the Center of Decision Research at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. His main body of work focuses on how people think about one another, and more frankly put, why intelligent people routinely misunderstand each other. He has significantly advanced the fields of behavioral science and psychology, and his teachings and research have practical implications in any management situation. Today, we will provide an introduction to behavioral science and the fascinating principles that underline this field. We'll also give some insight into its practical daily applications. So let's jump right in. Professor Epley, can you go over the basic definition of behavioral science and what encompasses this field? So behavioral science is just a term that folks at the University of Chicago made up some decades ago to describe really a whole collection of different kind of approaches to research, all oriented towards trying to understand why people do what they do, that is to understand human behavior. So when we use the term behavioral science, we're referring to researchers from economics, psychology, sociology, that are really taking an individual level approach, trying to understand human behavior, the psychology that underlies it, how incentives and context affect it, and so on. It's really a multidisciplinary effort. When we talk about understanding the behaviors of humans and why people do the things that they do, there seem to be two camps that scientists and researchers break into or even people break up into, and that is the intuitive scientist and the psychological scientist. How does that come into play and what are the beliefs of these two camps? As psychologists, we use these two camps to describe what all of us do every day of our lives. That is the intuitive psychology. So everybody on the planet is an intuitive behavioral scientist or an intuitive psychologist in their everyday life. We all think about why people do what they do, what people want. We all think about what each other's attitudes are. We all try to predict each other's behaviors. We are all intuitive behavioral scientists or intuitive psychologists. What we mean when we talk about behavioral scientists or psychological scientists We mean the set of researchers who are trying to use science to understand how the human mind actually works. And sometimes there can be a disconnect between how we as intuitive psychologists think about the world and what the truth of the world actually is. So our behavior in daily life is guided by our beliefs and our expectations about each other. But sometimes those intuitions that we have can be mistaken. And it's really the job, I think, that the chief job of behavioral science is to try to make all of us a little bit wiser, including the behavioral scientists who are doing the work and who are learning about themselves. At its best, behavioral science allows us to be, as my colleague Linda Ginzel likes to put it, allows us to be wiser faster. We learn from research that allows us to conduct our human affairs more wisely than we might have otherwise, to educate our intuitive psychologist. 
So one of the foundations of behavioral science is the idea behind the fundamental attribution error and the influence of a situation versus the influence of a personality on behaviors. Can you go a little bit into that and how that plays a role in daily misunderstandings? Yeah, this is another example of the gap between how we think about the world as an intuitive psychologist or intuitive behavioral scientist and sort of how the world actually operates. The fundamental attribution error, sometimes also known as the correspondence bias, describes a, a very reliable tendency in human judgment, which is that when we're trying to explain a person's behavior, we tend to focus on the person. That is, we tend to focus on them and ignore the context that they are in, or at least overlook more than we ought to the context a person is in. So if we see somebody punch somebody else in the face, we might quickly assume that that's an aggressive person, right? We create a correspondent inference between the person's action as we understand it and what they are like as a person, their personality traits or tendencies. And what is background and often undervalued in our intuition is the power of the context that the person is in. So we might think this person is aggressive without stopping to think if he was provoked maybe or having a bad day or something of that sort. And it's fundamental, uh, it seems, in the sense that it's, it's a pretty basic feature of human judgment. Cultures do vary in the extent to which they, they jump to this conclusion and over, overlook the context that people are in. But it, it is a very reliable misunderstanding, I would say a systematic misunderstanding of why people do what they do, which causes us to underestimate or undervalue the power of the context that people are in to drive their behavior. Right. So from a practical standpoint, once we have a better understanding of the root cause of certain behaviors of individuals or groups, how is that something that can be useful in management or how does that impact how individuals treat one another? So the simplest thing is it does is if you're trying to change a person's behavior, change your own behavior, it really causes us to look to sources of influence we might otherwise overlook. So let's say you want to be a more grateful person in your life. You just, you just, you want to be more thankful to improve your own mood and others. And so you dedicate yourself to writing more gratitude letters, say. The intuitive psychologist might just try to commit to that and try to remind themselves each day to do this and just rely on their willpower to do this, assuming that if you commit to it, you'll, you'll make it happen. And if you really want to do it, then you'll do it. Understanding the power of context, though, should lead us to also try to change our behavior in another way, such as by changing the context we're in. Maybe I've got a little whiteboard here next to my computer. Maybe I would decide to, to write a, a note on that that reminds me to write a gratitude letter or be grateful. Maybe I would recognize that I'm more likely to write a gratitude letter if it's easy for me to do it. So maybe I'll go out and buy a bunch of thank you notes so that I have them sitting next to me. And maybe I'll put them on the desk right next to my computer so that I see them each day so that I'm reminded to write those letters. So understanding behavioral science, understanding why we do what we do, causes us to intervene on ourselves and others in different ways. In this case, 
attending more to thoughts of how we could change the environment to make a desired behavior easy rather than hard, or how we change an environment to keep a goal top of mind, remind ourselves, make it easy for us to remember what we want to do rather than just relying on us to do it. So I think the real benefit of understanding human behavior is that we can intervene and act on it to change behavior in ways that we would want to for the better. It's very easy to draw the parallels of applicability um, when we think about behavioral science and its implications in changing behaviors on a population basis or even on an individual basis. When we think about empathy, say in the medical field, how does the fundamental attribution error impact the way we understand our patients and colleagues? And how does that impact how we may approach one another when a change in behavior is desired? You know, at the 10,000 foot level, if we, if we think about what we've learned as psychologists about human judgment uh, at a high level, the most, most of our mistakes, the most, you know, the sort of the most basic forms of our mistakes come in a particular form. And that is that we jump to conclusions very quickly. Our, our minds are, are wonderful sense makers. We make sense of the world very quickly and very easily. And that's great. But sometimes we make mistakes. And in fact, when it comes to thinking about the mind of another person, it's the most complicated thing we'll ever think about. Those mistakes are actually not all that rare. They're, they're quite common. And the mistakes can sometimes be, be shocking to us we, and we don't recognize that we're making them. I think the, the main lesson to take from all of this, whether it's specific uh, judgmental biases like the fundamental attribution error or this more general insight, is that we, we're likely to make more mistakes in thinking about each other than we might imagine. And so it makes some sense if we really want to understand what's going on with another person, for us to slow down a bit and ask the person what they're thinking or they're feeling and be more open to listening to what they have to say rather than jumping to quick conclusions about what's going on with another person. So I know that a portion of your prior work has focused on trying to understand how well we actually understand other people and whether the level of confidence we have about our assumptions or the way we understand another human being, uh, whether that level of confidence is accurate. Can you speak to some of that work and some of the findings that you have uh, come across? Sure. So I can give you just one really easy example. And it has to do with telling whether another person is lying or telling the truth. It seems like something we can do quite easily. I mean, we, we can look at another person and we can jump to a quick conclusion about whether the person is being honest with us or not. When psychologists study people's accuracy, it is often shockingly low. If we um, took a video of 10 different people randomly being asked to either answer a question truthfully or untruthfully. And we then ask you to guess whether each person is lying or telling the truth. On average, we would expect you to get about 54% of your guesses correct. That is a little better than chance. Chance would be 50% correct, given that a person could be lying or telling the truth. Data consistently find that people are better than chance, but not by much. So, you know, 54% accuracy on average, 
in these kinds of experiments, the meta-analyses suggest. But if we ask you to predict how many out of those 10 videos you got right, it's likely you would think that you got more like seven or eight or maybe even nine out of 10 correct. Uh, And that's a very reliable kind of finding. When judgments are quick and easy, like telling whether somebody's telling a truth or a lie, we tend to be confident in our judgment, even in cases where our accuracy is actually quite poor. So it's not that we're consistently terrible at understanding what's going on in the mind of another person. It's just we tend to be not as good as we think we are quite consistently. In other experiments where people are asked, say, to predict how much others in a group like them. So you know, you're maybe in a work group of, of 10 people and we ask you to predict how much each of those people in the group like you. And then we measure how much each of those people in the group report actually liking you. In meta-analyses of studies of this kind, we tend to find a reported correlation between predictions of liking and actual liking is 0.13, where chance alone, just pure guessing, would be a correlation of zero, and perfect accuracy would be a correlation of one. So it's better than chance, but like lie detection, not a whole lot. And yet, my bet is almost everyone thinks they have a pretty good sense of whether somebody likes them or not. It's just that that sense seems to be misplaced when we actually measure it and compare it against people's accuracy. So then when we're thinking about how to correct some of these errors or actually improve our accuracy to be more reflective of our level of confidence, what are some of the practical tips that you have that help people better understand each other and the situational determinants of an, another individual's actions or behaviors? My bet is there are a lot of practical tips that listeners here will find to be quite plausible, uh, that that will seem like common sense. Uh, And what we do in a lot of our experiments is is we sort of try to differentiate what's common sense and what's common nonsense. We've got lots of common sense about the world, but not all of it is good sense. So for instance, you might think that paying close attention to another person's body language watching their eyes very carefully or their shifty hands or, or whatever it may be, watching their body language carefully will help you understand them better. Around presidential debate time, which is about the time we're recording this, this podcast right now, every major news network seems to have its own body and nonverbal behavior analysts, their own body language experts come on to tell you what so-and-so was really thinking or feeling. Turns out, though, that in the data, body language actually doesn't reveal very much. That is, it doesn't tend to reveal as much as you might guess. It turns out to be really easy to mislead with body language, and you can also lead people honestly with it. So it's just not a very good signal. If I want to convince you that I'm excited about something, I can mislead you with my mighty body language without any trouble. Uh, And the data suggests it just doesn't convey as much accurate information as we might guess. So reading body language or learning to read it better does not seem to be the royal road to another person's mind. You might also think that perspective taking is the key, that if I can just if I can just put myself in your shoes, so Ashley, you're conducting this conversation right now, you're leading this conversation right now, if I could just put myself in your shoes, think about things from your point of view, 
then I would understand you better. If I'm a rich person, I might try to imagine what it's like to be poor, put myself in a poor person's shoes, and then really understand what it's like. Our data, though, suggests that this little bit of common sense wisdom also doesn't do much to increase accuracy. When we, for instance, ask married couples to predict their their spouse's attitudes on a series of different items, asking them to take the other person's perspective, to put yourself in their shoes. If you're a doctor, to say, imagine yourself in the patient's perspective. When we ask our spouses to do that, put themselves in their spouse's shoes, they become no more accurate at guessing their partners, their spouses' attitudes than if they just guessed them without asking them to go through those mental gymnastics. Time and time and time again, we find that people think that perspective taking, imagining things from another person's point of view, will increase accuracy above and beyond what people are doing already. And time and time again, it just doesn't. We published a paper a couple of years ago on this where we reported no less than 25 experiments testing whether perspective taking can actually increase accuracy in judgment. And we found no consistent evidence that it increases accuracy at all. So the only thing that we've actually found that reliably increases your ability to understand the mind of another person is what we refer to as perspective getting. That is just asking another person what they think, how they feel, what they believe, and then being quiet and listening to what they have to say, we use this phrase, perspective getting, to contrast it with perspective taking, this thing that people think works, but actually doesn't work very well for understanding another person. So in one experiment, we asked married couples to predict how their spouse would answer a series of 20 attitude statements. In the perspective getting condition, we actually had them go through all of these attitude items and discuss them, ask the other person, how they felt about uh, these. And then they went off and predicted how the other person would answer them on a scale. It's probably no surprise to any of us, indeed, this was sort of a no-duh result for us, that those people who asked their spouse what they thought about these uh, issues were more accurate at predicting their spouse's responses than people who just tried to take their spouse's perspective. But what was really interesting to us is that the participants in the experiments themselves, that is, those people who are actually using these strategies, didn't seem to know that asking the other person what they thought meaningfully increased their accuracy. That is, people in the perspective-taking condition who were imagining how their spouse would respond or were doing barely better than chance, thought they had gotten just as many right as those who had actually gotten their partner's perspective and therefore knew their spouse's thoughts more accurately. What's interesting about this for us is that people don't seem to really recognize what's a good strategy for understanding another person and what's not when they're in the midst of actually using it. The way you understand what's on the mind of another person is you ask them and listen. At least it doesn't always work, but it's the, it's the best thing that we know of so far. So it sounds like there hasn't really been a consistent correlation between the level of confidence that an individual has in their accuracy and the true level of accuracy. Is there any reason to explain why that is and potentially how we can avoid being overconfident in the assumptions or the conclusions that we make about other individuals? 
it's not the case that there's no correlation between our confidence and our accuracy. It's just that it's pretty weak. Um, correlations between confidence and accuracy are typically in the 0.2 range. That is a, that's a correlation coefficient, bigger than zero, considerably smaller than one. Uh, so people who are really confident about something do tend to be a little more accurate than people who say they're clueless. The problem is that with a correlation like that, with a small correlation, uh, when you are the most confident in something is also the time you're likely to be the most overconfident due to regression to the mean. And so I think the best way to approach this problem is simply to recognize to have some humility about the quality of your own judgments, to recognize that you're not quite as good as you think and that you might want to pause and consider whether you could be wrong. And if you do that, if you stop and think, wait, I probably really don't know what's going on here or I'm probably not as good as I think, there are a lot of things that I think you would do quite naturally to be better, that is to, to gain more information that would align your confidence with your accuracy, like you'd be more inclined to, to ask a patient how they're feeling if you recognize that you really don't know. Um, you would be uh, inclined to get a report from somebody else about what's going on in, say, a patient's life if you, if you thought you weren't quite sure. If you, if you weren't sure how an interaction had gone with a patient, you might ask your colleague who was standing there next to you how they thought it went and therefore get some insight beyond uh, your own narrow perspective on on that situation. But the key, I think, to combating the problem of overconfidence is just to be less confident, just to be a little more humble. Uh, overconfidence is a great barrier to learning. Humility is the first step towards, I think, uh, learning better. So when we take all of this information into account, when we think about, you know, we have certain assumptions that we make that may not be true. Um, we can stop and take time to gather more information and potentially increase the accuracy of our understanding of situations and behaviors and individuals' perspectives. And then we take that into account with the low correlation between confidence and accuracy regarding the understanding of other individuals. When we compile all of that data, and when we think about all of these principles, how do we approach decision-making and how do we approach guiding behaviors of other individuals who we know that we don't fully understand? Um, so psych psychologists usually take two approaches in these cases. One is to try to educate our own intuitions a little bit which are the kinds of perspective-getting approaches that I described to you just a moment ago. So that, that's one approach. Try to make us wiser decision-makers or smarter uh, in, in some way. The other approach to take is to change decision-makers. That is to, uh, to stop using people and move to, say, machines or to algorithms, um, to just drop human beings out of it. If, if you think that we can't improve, say, doctors' abilities to identify who should get a kidney and who shouldn't, well, then maybe we should just put machines in there, algorithms in there, who can, through a number of different methods, 
perhaps learn the optimal way to make this decision. And then we just turn the decision over to another decision-making agent rather than, than people. The third approach is sort of a hybrid of those two, which is to change the context in which you're making a decision so that you can make a wiser one. That is, you might modify the situation so that, um, so that you do better than you might have otherwise. This is sort of a, a hybrid then between this going to a machine versus um, just educating our, our intuitions. This would be maybe systematizing a decision a little more. And this is something you can do when you are making the same decision often you might come up with a checklist that you would use. So airplane pilots, for instance, they don't rely on their intuition. They don't trust that their training will cause them to get this right all the time. And they also don't turn it over to a machine. Instead, what they do is they've come up with a systematic series of steps they go through to make sure that they don't miss, uh, miss any steps. Uh, this has been incorporated in medicine in lots of ways as well. Many of your listeners will be familiar with Atul Gawande's book, Checklist uh, Manifesto, I believe. He's written about that uh, at length. That can work as well. So those are the three approaches that, that psychologists take, educating intuition, swapping out decision makers, going with a, a machine or an algorithm or something else, or trying to change the context in which decisions are made. So overall, I think the implications of the research that has come out of the field of behavioral science and understanding what we don't understand and understanding our shortcomings in really gathering information about others and trying to explain their behaviors can be incredibly important in medicine and trying to change patient behaviors or encouraging better habits altogether. For our listeners who are interested in learning more about these topics, do you have any specific recommendations or additional resources? So, I mean, what we try to do as academics, of course, is we publish our research in papers that probably don't want to read. Um, but we also write books, and those books we are hoping as academics that you will read, and they're meant for a more general audience. So, listeners will know many, many of these books. The ones that I would recommend for this particular topic, um, I wrote a book a few years ago titled Mindwise. That's really about this interpersonal understanding and misunderstanding. But I also highly recommend uh, my colleague Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein's book, Nudge, which even though neither of them are psychologists, uh, Richard Thaler is uh, an economist and Cass is a, a lawyer, they have done a, a better job explaining the fundamental attribution error, the sort of core misunderstanding of human behavior and the appropriate response to it better than any psychologist I think I've ever seen. They certainly have written a, a wonderful book on this. The book's called Nudge, and it describes how to change context in ways that will help improve decision-making. Those are probably the two places I would recommend starting. And if you've already read those books, then you can look online to see the books that cite these books and read those, or you can look in the reference list of these books and see the things that these books have cited and follow up there. Wonderful. Well, Professor Epley, thank you so much for joining us. Any last tips or advice for our listeners? To stick with the theme that we've had for this conversation so far, in order to be wiser about the world, you need to approach it in a little more, little more humble way, assuming that you and others 
know a little less about each other than you might be inclined to think. And if you adopt that humble approach to dealing with other people, you're likely to treat others better, which will make them treat you better. And I think you're likely to learn more and be wiser as a result as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Epley. It's been an absolute honor to have you on our show. That wraps up this episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time.